Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. servant. I pray, Father, that your will would be done today. We ask in Christ's name, amen. The drunk husband snuck up the stairs quietly. He had been in a bar fight earlier that night, and as he looked in the bathroom mirror, he could see the cuts and bruises of his foolish actions. He cleaned them up as best as he could and put a few band-aids and then proceeded to climb into bed. Thinking that his wife would never know, he was sure he had managed to put one over on her. When morning came, he opened his eyes and there stood an angry-looking wife. She said to him, you were drunk again last night, weren't you? He replied, no, honey, why would you think that? She responded, well, I think what gave you away is you put your band-aids on the mirror instead of your face. (laughs) Sometimes, no matter how careful we think that we are, our sins will finally expose us. If King David were here this morning, I bet he would add a hearty amen to that. And that is what we're going to be looking at. Look at verse 16 with me. So it was. While Joab besieged the city, that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the people of the servants of David fell. And Uriah the Hittite died also. Joab knew that he couldn't send Uriah up to the front by himself because that would look too suspicious. So several of the king's servants are sent with him who are also going to die, just so David could continue to cover up his sins. Who are these other guys that are mentioned? We don't know. But to David, they are just collateral damage. I think it's important to remember that our sins can affect others. Do you remember in Joshua chapter 7, the story when Israel was defeated by the little town of Ai? They were so seemingly insignificant that after spying out the land, the messengers came back to Joshua and said, Look, we don't need the entire army to defeat these guys. Let's just send out two or 3,000 men, and that will be more than enough. But not only did they not defeat Ai, they actually ended up having to run for their lives. 
And so Joshua falls down on his face before the Lord and wonders what is going on. It is then that the Lord tells Joshua that there is sin in the camp. Listen to God's reply. So the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things, and have both stolen and deceived. They have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel cannot stand before their enemies, but turn their backs before their enemies, because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you any more, unless you destroy the accursed thing from among you. And so, eventually, Achan admits that he stole a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold. And he covered them up under his tent. And if you know the story, Achan is going to face some painful consequences from this. You could even say that he's going to be Achan. Come on, that's fun. But there can be a tendency for us to think like that, like Achan. We think that we have our sins covered. God, however, says otherwise. Be sure your sin will find you out, he declares. Therefore, we would be a wise group of people to make right those situations we think we have hidden. For if we choose to do that, we will diminish what the repercussions could have otherwise have been when God brings about full disclosure in our lives. Now concerning Achan, the entire nation felt the consequences of one man's sin because, and like that, in the spirit, we are one body. For example, if I shoplift, my whole body goes to jail, not just my hand. Likewise, when one person in our fellowship strays, it affects the whole body of believers. Thus, because Achan had sinned, God was grieved with the entire congregation. And so, please remember, we are attached in ways I don't think we truly appreciate or even understand. Because we know that sin results in a loss of God's power and the sense of his presence. It strangles and stifles the abundant life. It paralyzes and immobilizes ministry and service. Why aren't things working out? Why aren't things opening up? Why aren't things coming to pass, we cry? And the Lord would say, it is because I love you too much to let you continue on in your sin, which will eventually destroy you. Therefore, I'm holding back my provision and presence, my power and my blessing, not because I am mad at you, but because I grieve for you. Anyway, here we see that Uriah is a loyal soldier to the very end. Do you remember anyone else in the Bible who was betrayed by his nation and his bride and was obedient to the point of death? In that sense, Uriah is a picture of Christ. Verse 18, please. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger, saying, when you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, 
Why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you. For the sword devours one as well as the other. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. Joab knew that David might question why Joab allowed the troops to get so close to firing distance. And so he even imagines David recalling a story from Judges chapter 9 to make his point. Let me read you the account. Then Abimelech went to Thebes, and he camped against Thebes and took it. But there was a strong tower in the city, and all the men and women, all the people of the city, fled there and shut themselves in. Then they went up to the top of the tower. So Abimelech came as far as the tower and fought against it, and he drew near the door of the tower to burn it with fire. But a certain woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. And so this woman took an upper millstone and dropped it on Abimelech's head, crushing the guy's skull. I guess the moral of that story is don't mess with housewives who are stout in stature. But back to our story. A messenger was dispatched to relay the result of the battle to King David. If David asked him why the army fought so close to the wall, the messenger was instructed to tell him, that Uriah the Hittite was also dead, thereby justifying the foolish strategy. David's reply could hardly be any more cold-hearted. With astonishing and callous cynicism, he pretended that what had happened was no more than the unfortunate unpredictability of war. For the sword devours now one and then the other. Such a heartless attitude. David is like, hey, baby, you win some and you lose some. Oh, well, what time does Dancing with the Stars come on? Look at verse 26. When the wife of Uriah the, heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now I think probably Bathsheba's expression of grief for a dead warrior husband was undoubtedly sincere. But perhaps they were mitigated by the knowledge that she would one day be living in the palace. And people probably raised their eyebrows when she married so quickly after the funeral and married the king at that. But less than nine months later, when she delivered a baby boy, 
I bet eyebrows went up again. Now, back in that, those days, they didn't have pensions or Social Security. So when a man died on the battlefield and left a wife behind, especially if that wife had no grown sons to take care of her, she was in a very vulnerable place. And so David steps in. And I'm sure the people thought, look at the greatness and magnanimity of our king. He is willing to add this man's wife to his household to take care of her all of her days. What a guy. And so David is not only an adulterer and a murderer, he's actually coming off looking like a hero in this thing. We can imagine David thinking, well, all is well that ends well. And David could claim to the boy that he had fathered as his own. And surely that would be the end of the matter. Except for one thing. Unusually, in the life of David, everything that has happened since that evening when he spied Bathsheba bathing had occurred without any reference whatsoever to the God that he served. David and Bathsheba and Uriah and Joab have all gotten a lot of press in this chapter. But God hasn't been mentioned even one time. However, as always, the Lord has been watching. The account of what happened with David and Bathsheba and Uriah concludes with the devastating closing statement. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, David's effort at a cover-up may have momentarily seemed successful, but this was ridiculous. Likewise, we may deceive ourselves about our evil thoughts, deeds, and words, but evil cannot be hidden from God. Can I tell you now that God sees sin? Can I tell you that God hates sin? He is a holy God. He does not overlook sinful behavior. He will always deal with sin. He will never let it go unchecked or undealt with. God will deal with your heart if you are his child. Now David no doubt thought that he had got away with this sin by cleverly covering his tracks. But God knew otherwise. No matter how well I think I have covered my tracks, the reality is that sin will eventually track me down. That is Satan's strategy in our lives. He sucks you into a sin, and then he makes sure later that that sin surfaces to expose you, to humiliate you, and to finally condemn and destroy you. And so after nine or ten months of thinking that he has gotten away with this sin, David will now have to face up to the repercussions. Here we see David, the man after God's own heart, who committed adultery and then murder in a last-ditch effort to cover up his own sin. But he will pay dearly for his sins in the upcoming chapters. As Charles Spurgeon once said, God does never allow his children to sin successfully. David will suffer the consequences of his sin for the rest of his life.
And so will we also if we continue to rebel against him. For the book of Hebrews tells us that the Lord chastens those that he loves and he scourges every child that he receives. The lesson is that no matter how powerful we are, no matter how smart we are, the Lord will not allow us to get away with it. The Bible says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man will reap whatever he sows. That's simply a divine principle. We're about to see that in chapter 12. Look at verse 1 with me. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The king had not used his position and power as he had previously done for justice and righteousness, but rather now he has used his power to commit adultery and arrange a cover-up. Like too many humans given a position of power, he forgot the one to whom he was accountable. He used his position not to serve those entrusted to his care, but to assert his own self-serving desires, to abuse and harm others, and to benefit and protect himself. Fortunately for us, politicians no longer stoop to such despicable levels. And speaking of delusion, David deluded himself and did his best to delude others into thinking that he had done absolutely nothing wrong. However, the last line of, Hebrew, or of chapter 11 cast a true light where it says, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. There is no mention of the Lord in chapter 11 until that very last sentence. This is reflecting in the narrative, I think, David's own lack of attention to God during this portion of his life. At this point in his life, David is kind of like a cockroach who runs into the darkness as soon as the light is turned on. But you know, we can be thankful, I think, that scripture deals openly with failure. The defects of the saints are not edited out for us. The dark sides of people who even made a tremendous difference in the Bible are also there with all of their failings to see. Things like King David's murderous adultery and scheming, Elijah's loss of nerve, Jonah's vindictive spirit, and Peter's cowardice before a servant girl. Now, in the previous chapter, Bathsheba and then Uriah both came to David. And their coming created the situations in which David has acted so wickedly. Now, Nathan has came to David to deal with that wickedness. The first thing I want us to notice is that the Lord sent Nathan. God didn't send an enemy to talk to David about his sin. He sent a friend. This is often, this is most often the way of the Lord. When he has a word of correction to bring to us, as you might expect, it will be from someone who has a heart for us. Conversely, unless your heart is filled with compassion for the person you're about to correct, 
it is probably not your responsibility to correct him or her. Think about the time when Jesus arrived in the upper room. He found his disciples arguing with each other over whom of them were the greatest. But he also noticed that they had dirty feet. So instead of chastening them for arguing, he girded himself with a towel and washed those dirty feet. Therefore, I have no right to point out the dirt on other people's feet unless I am willing to wash them time and time again. We should love and protect those we have to correct as much as possible. Think about the time that Noah lay in his tent, naked and drunk. Now Ham couldn't wait to share this embarrassing news with his brothers. Shem and Japheth, on the other hand, walked backwards into their father's tent, a blanket stretched between them to cover his nakedness and his shame. Scripture declares that love covers a multitude of sins. Love doesn't talk about sin. It doesn't draw attention to sin. It doesn't call a prayer meeting to discuss sin. Love walks in backwards and covers sin. Now, it was during this time of unrepentant sin in David's life that he will write Psalm 32 and 51, which I urge you to read today. He will talk about during that time of unconfessed sin that all of his vitality had disappeared, and he was as dry spiritually as the Judean wilderness. At this point, God has got his hand heavy with conviction on David's life. So for around a year, God is trying to work privately in David's life in dealing with his sin. And I love that God tries to deal with our sin as privately as he can. He will only escalate it as he has to if we refuse to repent privately. So God has been working hard during this time to break David so he wouldn't have to go the next step and publicly reveal his sin. Let's be honest. It's not a pleasant thing to be confronted by a holy God about sin and transgression in our life. But the purpose behind the confrontation is beautiful. When you stop to think about how amazing it is that God loves you enough to give you an opportunity to return to him, it should bring joy to our hearts. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. I wonder, have you ever experienced the blessing of a friend's bruises? Can you look back and appreciate when someone undertook to call you on the carpet and you know that you needed it? This is the reason that you and I cannot remain silent when God prompts us to speak to a loved one caught in a quicksand of sin. Yes, it is painful to tell someone what you're doing is wrong. No one likes to be viewed as the heavy or the bad guy. And there is a good chance you may be misunderstood and even talked about. But when an individual is caught in a cycle of unrepentant sin, there may be no way of escape unless someone is obedient to the voice of God. And they are willing to take that risk, confront that sin, and point that person in the right direction. 
it was necessary for Nathan to confront David with his sin. And in God's design, it is necessary that we care enough about those around us who are trapped in some type of sinful behavior to take the risk of lending a helping and corrective hand. We do that by telling them the truth about their condition, but not only that, we show them the way out. Now earlier, Nathan had had the privilege of delivering the message about God's covenant with David and with his descendants. But now, the prophet has to perform spiritual surgery and confront the king about these terrible sins. Nathan is now going to share what the New Testament calls a parable. Jesus did this often when he needed to make a very strong point. And by the way, if Jesus ever looked at you and said, once upon a time, you were about to become the punchline. Look at verse 2. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Since David had been a shepherd himself, he would pay close attention to the story about the theft of an innocent lamb. And as the king, he was obligated to see that the poor families would be given justice. And so Nathan begins in verse 1, there were two men, one was rich and the other poor. This, of course, would be David and Uriah. All the poor man had was one little ewe lamb. It was like a part of the family. He truly loved it. I bet sometimes he'd even hold the ewe in his arms and say, I love you. You're a <clears throat> I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I give it to you like I get it. But I'm sure David, being a shepherd, could identify with becoming attached to a small lamb. But notice in verse 3 that Nathan says the lamb was like a what? A daughter to him. Do you know why I think that Nathan used the word daughter? Because in Hebrew, the word daughter is the word bath. And shortly we're going to realize that that lamb was like another bath, being Bathsheba. Now there are two interesting parallels in this story. Let's look at it closer. Starting at the end of verse 1. Listen to verse 11 of chapter 11. Uriah says to David, when asked why he didn't go to his house, replies with this. So I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife. Keep those words in mind. Eat, drink, and lie. We see here in verse 3 that the little lamb used to eat the poor man's food, drink out of his cup, and lie in his arms. Eat, drink, and lie. It's interesting that David didn't remember the words of Uriah at this point because eat, drink, and lie were the three luxuries of domestic bliss that Uriah had refused to enjoy. David didn't seem to realize that he was the rich man, Uriah was the poor man, and Bathsheba was the ewe that he had stolen. Verse 4. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd 
to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. I think the other and even more compelling parallel is the characters. The rich man is David, the poor man is Uriah, the ewe is Bathsheba, the flock of the rich man would be David's harem. But who is the traveler that is mentioned by Nathan? I think the traveler is David's desire. David had natural desires that he wanted to fulfill. The problem is that he took Bathsheba from Uriah to satisfy that desire when he could have taken one from his herd of women. Herd is probably not the best word when applied to the fair sex, actually. Uh, I'm glad Connie is teaching the kids this month. Uh, the traveler whom the rich man fed represents the temptation and the lust that visited David on the roof and then controlled him. And like that, if we open the door, sin will come in as a guest, but it won't be long before it will become the master. Verse 5. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David is enraged at the behavior of the rich man. Remember, David is a man of great passion. He's a poet and a musician and a singer. He danced with all his might before God when the ark was brought into Jerusalem. So it's nothing new for us to see how deep his emotions run. But I think the crowning touch in David's display of righteous indignation is the religious flavoring he gives it by the words, as the Lord lives. As surely as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. In the Hebrew, it literally means a son of death is this man. David has finally invoked the name of God. But this is the first time it seems that David has thought about the Lord for some time. By the living God, he pronounces death on this man. And so David passes judgment on the rich man without realizing he is passing judgment on himself. And I think of all blindness, the worst kind is that which makes us blind to ourselves. David has dug his own grave, slept on the bed that he has made, and hanged himself with his own rope. When he took the words out of Nathan's mouth and said, the man who did this deserves to die. Now, hold on a minute. I mean, it was a very nice lamb, I am sure. But the death penalty? Now, the fourfold restitution part is what was required in the Mosaic Law. This is Exodus 22.1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So we see that stealing and killing a domestic animal was not a capital offense in Israel. But David was so angry, he exaggerated both the crime and the punishment. Until now, he had been minimizing the consequences and doing nothing about his own sin, when actually what he did to Uriah was worthy of death. In closing, as a sermon within a sermon, 
Isn't it amazing how our sins always look worse on other people? That's just something for you to think about over lunch. We now know that the law required a stolen lamb to be paid back with four lambs. Keep in mind, in this parable, Bathsheba was that lamb. Do you know how many of David's sons are going to die? Four. At least three of David's sons died during his lifetime. In addition to the death of Bathsheba's first son, were the deaths of his son Ammon and Absalom, and another son, Adonijah, was executed shortly after David's death for trying to usurp the throne. So, how is David going to deal with Nathan's parable? Come back next week for his reply. I guess you could just read ahead, but I hope you come back. Father, it is so easy for me to see my sins projected on other people, and I shake my head and wonder what's wrong with them. And I've lost count of the times that you've just turned that right around and showed me that I'm angry with them because I hate it in my own life. Open our eyes, O God. Once again, James 1.22, do not let us deceive ourselves. Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things who can understand it. You are our only hope, Lord, into walking in the ways of holiness. Through that force, I pray in Christ's name, amen.